Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AE Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. Before the episode, I'd like to make an announcement. I've now run Think Like an Owner for over two years and built meaningful relationships with searchers, owners and operators, and investors. It has become a powerful platform to meet those who want to become owners. As part of these conversations, access to capital is consistently ranked as one of the most important and pressing topics for those interested in acquiring a small business. As a result, I'm excited to share that as we continue to evolve here at Think Like an Owner, the next step in our journey to support the small business acquisition community is to start providing capital directly to entrepreneurs looking to acquire small companies. We will focus on investing in searchers from both traditional backgrounds as well as those without an MBA or finance background. I'm looking forward to deepening my support to the search community, both with capital and guidance on finding a suitable company for you, as well as great mentors along the way. If you are one of these aspiring owners, know someone who is, or would like to learn more about my approach and how I believe I can add value, please reach out via my website, alexbridgman.com, or on Twitter, and let's chat. 
Rob Laban has been an entrepreneur his whole life. His early business pursuits include a small summer landscaping business, web development, and a tent rental business he owned for a brief period. He now works in his family's sixth-generation grocery business, Laban's Markets, and recently purchased a self-storage business. Through our conversation, we talk about the long history of his family's business, stories and lessons his family has passed down to him, operating the grocery business and its razor-thin margins, and why he loves jujitsu. Enjoy. Thanks, Rob, for joining us. Looking forward to having you and talking about grocery stores and self-storage and some of the other small businesses you started when you were younger. And so all of these businesses are ones I haven't talked about on the podcast, so I'm excited to hear about those, but would love to hear about your background generally and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, man. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I just got to say, this is one of my new favorite podcasts to listen to. I, I love all the guests you bring on. It's like as soon as I finish listening to one, I'm researching their Twitter profile. And it's really exciting to be asked to be on here. So thank you for that. So starting with my background, I guess, you know, if we go back to high school, my senior year of high school, a buddy and I started a landscape construction company. And we just were doing it during the summer. And we weren't going to do it in the early spring or late fall because we were in school. So we're like, we can't take on any mowing or anything. So let's just do like landscape construction projects, mostly hard skates, some soft skates, walkways, patios, retaining walls. So we did all that, called it Country Landscape Construction and ran that almost all the way through college. It was just a great way to you know, use your hands and build things. And I don't think we paid any taxes back then. It was all cash. <laughs> but a really fun way. We ended up hiring our buddies to come work for us and uh, a really fun experience. So we did that. And eventually I was like, all right, I should probably try to get a more legit job. Ended up getting an internship at Timex Group. So I'm sure you've heard of like Timex Watches. Their headquarters is in the town uh, right over from where I live and uh, got an internship in their IT department, got to work on their global ERP team. ERP stands for Enterprise Resource Planning. So bringing all of the enterprise functions together under one piece of software. Uh, they were using Oracle at the time. So that was fun, but I didn't really see myself there. So I still had, I think, a semester left in college. I studied business in college. I would say, though, I learned way more from my miscellaneous side projects than I ever did in school. The first web project I ever tried to launch was this site called ufood.com. And it was a website where students could go and see the local menus for all their local pizza shops and restaurants around. And this was, I went to college 2007 to 2010 in New Haven, and there was no apps and stuff. I had a flip phone when I first went to college. I think when I graduated, I had a Blackberry. iPhones weren't even that big yet. And so this was a site where people could go and find the menus and decide what to order and outsource building it to some overseas web development company. And anyways, it, it never took off, but it was an awesome learning experience. I was a big fan of BMWs. So I used to buy and sell BMW M3s when I was in college. And back then forums were huge, like internet forums. So there were, I noticed some guy, he was selling like these custom t-shirts with like this motorsport flag emblem on it. And I was like, I, I could do that with water bottles. So I had a custom water bottle made with this logo on it. And I made a, a website called motorsportbottle.com. And I sold it to BMW enthusiasts through there, you know, mostly through the forums. And I ended up getting featured in the Roundel magazine, which is uh, put out by the BMW Car Club of America. So that was a fun little experiment. I made a couple grand on it, basically trying to live like the Tim Ferriss four hour work week lifestyle. So just miscellaneous projects like that. A lot of fun. 
And then when I graduated college, I didn't want to go back to the family business, which we'll touch on shortly. So my cousin, older cousin at the time, owned a tent rental company. And I thought it was a really cool little side business because he was just getting paid cash by all these people. And he goes, this guy I know like an hour away is selling his. He goes, you should buy it from him. So I ended up getting a business loan. It was a small little $30,000 business loan, but I went through the whole process and bought this tent rental company from this guy and built that up over the course of the summer and talk about sweaty work. You're just working nights and weekends. It was like after doing landscaping and stuff during the day, I'd go and set up tents at night. A lot of cash, a lot of most people would pay cash. So that was fun. Built the business up, sold some of the equipment I didn't need, had a nice website for it, established a good reputation. And then at the end of the summer, I'm like, I do not want to do this again. This is just, this is just brutal work. Like lugging these huge tents around on my back and these four foot long metal stakes and hitting them into the ground with a, a huge sledgehammer. And so I ended up marketing the business for sale again and a local police officer bought it for me. And I think, you know, I made money all summer long on it. I sold it for like 10 grand more than I paid. But the reason I bought it is... I knew the experience would introduce me to a lot of cool people, and that's exactly what happened. So I set up a tent for this guy who owned a software company in New Haven, and at the time, it was like the fastest-growing software company in the state. They were still super small and scrappy, and I guess he respected my hustle, and I told him, I was like, yeah, I want to find a real job at some point, and he was like, oh, just come work for me. So I started working for him, doing some like entry-level marketing stuff. At the time, they had this like god-awful website and ended up rebuilding his website, establishing their first Google pay-per-click campaign, all their social media presence and uh, their whole online advertising structure. And they went from no online advertising at the time to what I built through you know, custom landing pages and Google pay-per-click being the number one source of their internal leads. So that was a lot of fun. Did that for about a year and a half. And then my father had just bought a fourth grocery store And so this goes back to the family business now. That's when it made sense for me to come back to the family business. So the family business is we have a chain of four grocery stores in Connecticut. The smallest one being around 10,000 square feet. The largest one being about 25,000 square feet. The current corporation was started in 1962 by my grandfather and great-grandfather. They were partners in this small little butcher shop. At the time, they were working for someone else's butcher shop, and they were going under and my grandfather tells a story. He remembers walking into the meat cooler. My great-grandfather had like tears in his eyes. He was like, we're going under. We're not going to have jobs. And my grandfather said, well, we've got our life insurance policies. Let's just cash them in. And there's a place that we could rent on Main Street in Watertown. And it was 900 square feet. So they rented it and they started High Bon and Sons Incorporated. And they became known for their really high quality meats and butchering. And They were in this one little corner of this building, grew and grew and grew, eventually took over the whole building, started selling produce, you know, some trips and stuff. And it became like a little mini grocery store. And then in the 80s, they ended up moving down the road to like a full size, probably 15,000 square foot store. And since then, we've grown, we've shrunk. My father bought my grandfather out 11 years ago now. And we currently have four stores, not the same four as when I started. We had a, a different fourth one that we ended up having to close long story with that we won't get into but we bought a new fourth store in december of 2019 and uh in large part due to covid 2020 was our biggest year ever we did over 50 million dollars and we have over 420 employees now so it's a pretty serious business that started over 
120 years ago, not the current corporation, but over 120 years ago, my great, great, great grandfather was selling meat from a horse and buggy. And every Laban male since then has been a butcher, even though the actual ownership skipped a generation before it started back up again. Yeah, just as a random question for you, if your great-great-grandfather is selling meat through a horse and buggy, what's the refrigeration technology like for that? Like, How does he keep it cold while he's walking around selling in the meat? Back then, I don't know if you've ever seen ice boxes. So during the winter, they would have these rails that would go up to lakes and ponds, and they would send people out with saws, and they would saw big chunks of ice out of the lake, and then they would store them in these ice boxes. So it was basically a barn filled with hay and stuff on the outside, and they would insulate all this ice in these big blocks, and it would stay as ice throughout the winter, and they'd pull it out, and that's how they kept stuff refrigerated. He didn't really sell meat from the horse and buggy. I think he delivered meat from his shop via horse and buggy, but if you go to my Twitter page, you'll see my header image is him with uh, the horse and buggy in front of his shop in, uh, I think it's Jewett City, Connecticut. That's awesome. What a cool story. Thinking about your early businesses, it seems like you went from hard, sweaty, laborious business to IT, website, software, and then you kind of went back and forth and kind of settled somewhere in the middle. Is there some kind of key learnings you pulled from each side of those businesses as you went along? Yeah, I mean, I'm a really curious person, but also the, the reason why I went into like the sweaty work, the landscaping stuff is I was like, wait, I could make way more money working for myself doing this hard manual labor than I ever could working for minimum wage at the grocery store because I had no special skills at the time. I wasn't going to be paid anything special as a high school student. So I only worked in the grocery stores for a couple of years growing up. And then I spent my time doing my own thing because I could make 30 bucks an hour. And that was a home run. I also really enjoyed building things. And I think back to those summers of the different projects. I love the project type workflow where you're hustling for the next job and then like, all right, we get the job. And then once you build up enough of a book of business, you can step back and not have to be out hunting all the time. And you could focus on, on what you're building. And the summers always seemed longer because you could break them up in your head into like, oh, that was so-and-so's project where we built this wall. And then over here we did this walkway. So it was just really fun work. And I, I, I think back on it fondly, even though it was very hard work, I'd say since then, you know, working for the software company really taught me a lot and they give me a lot of freedom to just go and figure things out. So I didn't have any special web skills besides just being curious and having the flexibility to research it and figure out how to do things on my own and knowing what they were doing currently wasn't great. So I would just figure things out and get it done. I studied business management. It's essentially meaningless. I would never recommend anybody to study business management in college, get a specific degree if you're going to do that. You know, even marketing, that's for the most part, useless. I say get a finance degree, accounting degree. It's very specific. I would never recommend anybody going general like I did, but I knew I would figure it out. So that's why I did that. But in terms of going back and forth, I would say it was a part of just learning my lesson as to scalability, doing the landscaping thing, the temporal thing. It was very tangible. You got paid, you got some handsy cash. It was like exciting, but then it would step back and think, man, I'm really just trading my time for money for the most part. I didn't really have it outsourced. And as I learned more about businesses and business models and types of revenue structures, I wised up a bit. And then they had the opportunity to come back to the family business, which was a large business and a large business running in a very old fashioned way. So I came in and modernized all of our back office processes from payroll to accounting to 
in-store workflow, point of sale systems. Now we're doing e-commerce. And that's kind of been my specialty is like the systems guy. Let's make this better, create the, the railway for things to run on and then step out of the way, go on the next project. Yeah, I know on an earlier call of ours, you talked about the margins within a grocery store business are pretty darn low, much lower than even I suspected. But that forces you to become a really efficient operator and manage your systems really well. What kinds of systems did you start to refine and implement? Obviously, the accounting and some of the back office you just mentioned, but can you walk us through maybe one or two examples of a system that you made a little bit more efficient? A lot of it was driven due just to to saving money. A good example is we were outsourcing our shelf tag printing in a grocery store. Unless you have digital shelf tags, which cost a fortune to purchase, then you have to buy batteries for them. You know, almost all grocery stores, even the best ones out there, still use printed shelf tags. And we were outsourcing this to our wholesaler. I think it was costing us like 20 grand a year, something like that. And I was like, all right, where's this information coming from that we're printing? And can we do it in-house? And I ended up finding this program called FileMaker. Believe it or not, Apple owns them. And it's this little database tool. It's like a WYSIWYG database tool. So you get to build an application in essentially a drag-and-drop interface, create your own scripts, your own layouts for how you want to view the data. You can clean up data with it. So I would pull in like our weekly sale file, which might have a 1,000 items in it that we need to print shelf tags for format the UPCs properly, the size, run calculations to do unit pricing. If something weighs 14 ounces for the unit price, you need to show that by the pound. So you need to do do these conversions and all these if statements. You know, if it's ounces, display this type of unit. If it's whatever, this type of unit. So ended up using FileMaker to format all that data, printing the tags in-house. We bought a printer and I think it cost us like two grand a year to do it all in-house. So just basically the materials. And that system still runs today. I have a girl in the office who's our scanning coordinator and every week she's printing shelf tags off of it. So it's kind of cool. It's like this little piece of software that I created that people get to use and we save some money on it. It makes life easier. And I've added on to it as well. So we got a new point of sale software company and... Our old one, you would submit the UPC for an item without the check digit. So I don't know if you've ever seen like the UPC, the barcode on a grocery item. It's a 12-digit number. And the last number is a calculated number based on the 11 numbers that precede it. And what it's doing is it's adding up every even number, every odd number, and then it does a calculation to determine what the last number should be. And when you scan that item at the register the scanner is actually confirming that the math works for everything and it's legit to make sure it had a proper scan. So there's all this complex math happening in the background. But needless to say, the old point-of-sale system used only the 11 digits of the UPC, and the last one was calculated by the software. Where the new one, it used the full 12 digits. But our wholesaler only gave us our files with the 11 digits. So I then used FileMaker to create a new formula and script to automatically add in that 12th check digit so that we could import that data into our point of sale system. So that's just a little example of a way that, you know, found a tool to streamline an annoying process that someone would have previously had to do by hand. Would you be willing to walk us through some of the margin discussion for a grocery store business for those who aren't familiar? Yeah. So this brings up the story that we talked about the last time where Occasionally, we'll get a complaint from a customer like, oh, your prices are too high. You guys are making way too much money. And we always chuckle because it's like, you know, if you only knew. 
we'll say to the customer, like, what do you think we make on a $100 sale? And the default answer is usually somewhere around $20 to $30. And they'd be correct for the most part if we were talking gross margins. But our gross margins are only after you subtract the cost of goods, which are you know usually around 65%. So on a $100 sale, you got to take $65 right off the top cost of goods. That goes to our vendors. So we're left playing with that roughly $35 that's left to do all of our other expenses. So you've got payroll that has to come out of there. There's another almost 20%. All right. Now we're down to, what is it, 10% left? And so then out of that, you've got to pay your rent 3%. You have taxes, you've got electricity, all your other utilities, supplies. And on average, it's a little higher now, but on average, I think from like the years 2012 to 2018, the industry average was like 1% to 2% net profit margin for grocery businesses. So on a $100 order, typically a grocery store is only making $1 to $2 on that, which is wild. So you got to do volume. Yeah, that is wild. And you also had a tweet earlier about the real money in grocery stores is made by owning the real estate. Can you expand on what you mean by that? Yeah, so growing up, my grandfather would always say to me, like, if you get the opportunity, you got to buy commercial real estate. He goes, I never had the chance to. I wish I did. And my father would say, I know a guy that that owns one grocery store and he's killing it because he owns the whole plaza and he's paying himself rent. It's a game changer. We could pay 300 grand a year in rent. You know, if you're paying that to yourself, who cares what your mortgage is? You're paying your mortgage down in the building in 20 years, you own the place. But we never have the opportunity to at any of our locations because the landlords were long-term holds and they had no desire to sell. It was, you know, often second generation and it was the kids or grandkids who owned it after it was passed down. So I know so many people who may have one little location, but they've been paying themselves rent for two generations. They're sitting on, you know, all the money they make from the grocery store, but also this really valuable asset. And that's a key thing. And what it allows you to do too, is you can get much better financing terms if you own real estate. We have to go get a a business loan to restructure some debt. The most we can get is 10 years because there's no real assets behind it besides the inventory, but that's not that much. Whereas if you own the real estate, you can go and finance something for 25 years. So your cash flow is just dramatically better. And also, if you get into trouble, you can just reduce your rent. You're the landlord. So there's so many ways you win by doing that. And because of those conversations always being pounded into my head, it kind of put me on the lookout and planted that seed in my head to, all right, I got to figure out a way to get into real estate one day. And that's what eventually led me into the self-storage business, which is where I am now as a side gig. Well, I'm excited to talk about the the self-storage for sure. But before we get into that, I want to hear more about your family business. I love talking with people who have these family businesses because each generation makes their own changes and improvements on the last. Has your family talked about some of the changes they've made with each generation with these stores? I think it's interesting to look back because if you look at my great-grandfather, he was strictly a butcher for his entire career. I mean, his only job was to have a knife in his hand and break down you know, whether it was lamb, pigs, beef, you know, and that was back when they were bringing it in by the whole side of an animal. Whereas nowadays it comes in cryovac portions, smaller muscle groups that will break down into specific cuts, but nobody's breaking down whole animals anymore unless you're a super small craft butchery or you're dealing with farm animals. Then you go to like my grandfather who, you know, under his ownership, it grew from one little butcher shop to eventually a couple stores and 
he eventually stopped being a butcher. He became the chairman and CEO of the company. And then when my father was probably in his early 30s, he took over as president of the company and he used his knowledge to take it from this little small town store to really professionalize the company, adding the the formality, the processes and how we do things. And under his leadership, even while my grandfather owned it up until he bought him out, growing up to four stores, eventually it was five at one point. And we've grown and we've shrunk. We've grown and we've shrunk as we've had good locations and not so good locations. And we're still very much a small business. And even though it was a little more professional, it still lacked a lot of the formal processes. And I think that's kind of where I come in is I feel like each Laban has gotten a little bit less ADD with each generation. You know, my grandfather's like off the wall. My dad's a little more subdued and I feel like I'm, I'm more subdued than both of them. So I have a little bit more structure to my thought process. And my dad is so good in the moment dealing with people, this big drama, whether there's a, a rift between the employees in the store or there's some random sexual harassment claim that he has to deal with. He's so good at handling problems one-on-one with people. So my job now is I, I need to get him to just focus on what he's really good at, which is the one-on-one, the personnel stuff. And I'm taking over all of the structure, the systems, the processes so that the business can continue to grow, even if we are not pulling every single lever every time. So empowering our people with the tools, whether through technology, scalable systems, so that it's not this one for one every single time. You've talked also about lessons that your family has instilled with you over time. Can you share a few of those lessons that they've shared with you? I think they've been successful despite their actual lack of business skills. They're just really good people, which has led good people to want to be around them. And I think I'm actually bringing much more of the business knowledge to the table to scale this amazing reputation we've built over generations. My grandfather and father, they're like Santa Claus. I mean, they'll give their shirt off at people's backs. There's been years where we're a nonprofit company. Basically, we've lost money, but we've continued to give to charity every year and we've given away more money than the company's profited. So I think the biggest takeaway from them and their lessons is actually less on the business side and more on the human side, just realizing that your reputation takes a lifetime to build, but you can lose it in an instant. And that's extremely valuable. And also the importance of family. I'm very lucky to have such a large local family all within a couple towns and probably within an hour uh, to a half an hour of where I live. So our family parties pre-COVID obviously could have 50 people at them. And a lot of them have worked in the business over the years. And it's just a really special thing that is kind of priceless. Are there any favorite stories that they've told you about examples of giving the shirt off their back or things they've done in the community that were really impactful? We have the recurring ones, such as like every year we host, we've done it for 34 years in a row now, our annual charity golf tournament. I took this over in 2012 and basically we raise funds through our annual charity golf tournament. We charge people to come play. We have sponsors for the tournament and each year we net about $40,000 that gets donated to our local food banks. So that's a big one. In addition to that, we have a cash for charities program where say your church or something, you can collect Laban's receipts and we'll give half a percent of the total back to these organizations once they submit the receipts. So there's been organizations that have received $20,000 and Uh, donations on our behalf through those. I mean, other little examples of things that don't really get talked about are we had a a manager recently whose mother passed away and they were going to lose her house 
because they couldn't pay off the mortgage. It was something with the estate. It was all complicated. They didn't have any you know, planning set up. And she would just happen to be talking to my dad about this. I was like, she's like, oh, it's such a bummer. We're going to lose the house. And he was like, what do you owe on it? And she, it was like, you know, not a huge chunk of money. And he was like, well, I'll just pay it off for you. And when you sell it, just pay me back. And she was like, like, what? You know, she would never ask for that. And he was, yeah, like, of course, you know, if he can do that, he'll, he'll do it for someone. I mean, uh, <laughs> another example is this was just probably a month ago. We had one of our employees who has a mini dachshund dog and the dog swallowed a penny and two rocks. And the dog is the cutest little dog you've ever seen in your life. And he had to make the decision to either spend $4,000 that he didn't have, you know, potentially $4,000 to do the surgery at an emergency hospital because it was, it was like Thanksgiving Day. So there was no vet open. He had to take the dog to an emergency hospital or have the dog put down. So another employee heard about this and they call us and they're like, he's never, he's, will never ask you to do this, but we know the dog is his life. His mother has cancer. He's helping her pay the rent. And we're like, yeah, just do it. We just paid the bill for it. We called the, the vet hospital, gave him a credit card number, and he's going to pay us back over time. Like, sure, of course, we'll take care of that for you. And those are monetary examples, but there's been so many other ones. One that I like to tell is some little lady called and she was all upset because you're Every time I buy meat from you guys, it goes bad. You know, I put it, I come home and put it in my fridge the next day, it stinks. And it's like, something's not right here. And my dad's like, how's your fridge? She goes, my fridge is fine. She goes, come over and see it if you want to see it. So he comes over, he opens the fridge and he's like, oh my God, there's like steam coming out of this thing. It was like 60 degrees. So her fridge wasn't at temp. So he pulled the grate off of her fridge. He goes, he has her grab her vacuum. She's got a cat. And the thing is, the intake on the fridge is coated with cat hair. It's not getting any circulation. So he vacuums out the fridge, pulls it off the wall, vacuums the back of the fridge to clean all the coils off. We deal with refrigeration issues all the time. So he like knew what to do. And he's like, your fridge will be fine tomorrow. And he noticed her, her house was like really hot as well. It was like the middle of the summer. He goes, you don't have air conditioning or anything? She goes, I do. It's upstairs in the attic. My son won't come over and put it in. So he goes upstairs in the attic and he puts her air conditioner in for her. So that's just like a classic example of my dad. And I swear if he could just retire and just go door to door helping people, he would do it because he gets way more joy out of that than anything else in life. Yeah, you said that these stories and this family of yours is able to attract good people into their business. And I'd imagine it's really hard to find, you mentioned having 420 employees, like that many really great people within your community. How do you hire when you're going through that many different positions in your company? Yeah, I mean, most of the hiring is done by the store directors for your entry-level roles. Most management positions are hired internally, people who've been with us and they get promoted when someone else either moves on or moves up. So that's been great. We kind of have our own feeder system and having multiple stores helps with that because it gives people opportunities to shift from location to location as opportunities become available. Yeah, we're just really lucky to have such a deep talent pool. People, especially managers who've been with us for decades. And there's really not that many formal training processes, but a lot of people just learn through osmosis. They come on board and we just get up, they start working day one. And thanks to the great people around us, things just get done and, and the show goes on which is, I joked to my dad recently, I said, if we had to burn all this to the ground and start over tomorrow, I'm like, we couldn't do it. I said, it's the generational 
flywheel, the inertia behind that, that keeps this thing turning. And it's, it's just amazing how every day all of these moving parts come together. You mentioned earlier about self-storage and your own separate real estate investments or thought process. Can you explain what you did recently? And I know you obviously had a very popular Twitter thread about that that we can link to, but would love for you to go through why you decided to go into self-storage and how you find this particular deal. It was kind of an accident, really. I mean, besides the fact that I wanted to own commercial real estate at some point in my life, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I in 2016 were renting an apartment that was right next to a self-storage facility. And every day after work, I'd come home and my dog and the owner of the storage facility's dog would play together in the field in between our two buildings. We kind of hit it off. He was like an old Vietnam War vet, you know, into hunting and fishing and all that stuff. And we stayed in touch over the years. And I told him back in 2016, I said, if you ever want to retire and sell this business, let me know because I'd love to buy it. I'm like, how, you know, how hard could self-storage be? So I kind of kept bugging him about it as years would go on. And it was... November of 2018, one day I noticed his website was broken. It's just like you'd go to Google his business and you click on the link for the website and it crashed like it didn't work. So I offered to build him a new website for free. Just pay for the hosting. I'll set it all up for you. And so that kind of like rekindled our conversation again. And he was like, yeah, you know, I just got to buy my sister's portion of the property side of the business out. And he goes, I think about retiring. So I kept nudging him. And a couple months later, he goes, I bought my sister out. And I said, you ready? He goes, make me an offer. So I was like, all right, well, can I see your financials and share all the information with me? And I had to go figure out how to value a self-storage company. I, I knew nothing at the time about commercial real estate valuations, how any of that stuff worked. And finally, on March 5th, 2020, we closed the deal and uh, been a self-storage owner ever since. And I went into it thinking like, if this thing pays the mortgage, I'll be happy. You know, 20 years all in the thing. That'd be great. And I took it over and I was going to streamline some things. I already had my plan for, you know, the management software and the new websites. People got on board themselves online. And then I started looking at it further. I'm like, wait a second. I've got a lot more levers I could pull here from price increases to cutting costs. And since March, I've already more than doubled the value of the business. And that's kind of where this Twitter thread comes in. It's kind of has a catchy title. It's like how I bought a self-storage company and became a millionaire three months later because I added literally a million dollars worth of equity of this business through growing the sales and cutting the costs. And that falls down to the net operating income. And you multiply that by cap rate and it's now worth a heck of a lot more than it was when I bought it. Yeah. So can you talk about a few of those improvements in particular, some of the levers that you could pull on a self-storage facility? The biggest thing with the one that I bought is he had a lot of unnecessary expenses. This was an owner who had had this business for 40 plus years. The building was built by his father. It was a manufacturing company. He bought his father out, saw where manufacturing was going. He sold all the manufacturing equipment, put self-storage in in the late 80s. And the things basically filled up and he didn't think much about it. He had a 95-year-old bookkeeper that he paid almost $40,000 a year to mail out invoices for him, which was outrageous because software can do that for $80 a month. <laughs> so, you know, that one line item alone if you can put 40 grand a year, increase your net operating income by 40 grand a year, even at a 10 cap, that's $400,000 in value just added to your business by eliminating one line item of expense. In addition to that, there was a handful of other expenses. He was paying way too much for heating oil. Electric bill was outrageous because there was no LED lights. He had employees there six days a week from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. I now have an employee there three days a week 
for a total of nine hours for the entire week. So there's another 40 grand. So we're up to like $800,000 in value added just with those two things. In addition to that, I've grown the sales. There was over 120 units that were well below market rates. Basically, if someone had been there for a long time, he never raised the rates. So I got everyone up to today's rates and even increased prices at that point. I just got them up to today's rates. And so you add all those things up and conservatively, I've added a million dollars in value to the place. It's now a great cash flow business making six-figure income for me. And I basically only spend a few hours a week dealing with it. Yeah. And you mentioned having other employees there originally, and now you only have one. What did those employees do before? And is there something you automated that made it so a single employee over nine hours a week could handle that work? So in the past, everything was done on paper. If you wanted to rent a unit, you had to call there and you had to say, what do you guys have available? And they had to pull out their paperwork and say, oh, it looks like we got these ones available and it costs this much a month and it's this size. And they would say, okay, great. Then they'd have to schedule an appointment for that person to come in, fill out the paperwork, walk them to their unit. They had to then sell them a lock for their unit unless the customer already had one. And so there's all this handholding involved. In addition to payment collections, their bookkeeper, God bless him, this guy was 95 years old. He was working harder than anyone I know. He would hand type the invoices every month in Microsoft Word. (laughs) So literally hand typed. He would even put the dashes in to pretend like this is where you would cut the invoice and he would type the invoice numbers at the top. And sometimes there'd be an invoice number at the top and there'd be an invoice number at the bottom. And they often didn't match because as he updated them, it was a mess. So there's all this additional expense and inefficiency. And I go in and I put in a new management software. So if a customer wants to rent from me now, they go to my website, they click rent now, they fill in their contact info, they sign the contract digitally online. Then they receive an automatic email that tells them where their unit is. Uh, the general rules and instructions, and they also get a free lock included with their rental. So we don't have to have any interaction with them. They receive the email, they get their access code for the building, they come in, they watch the unit, and they're rented. And since March, I can think of two units that have been rented over the phone, probably rented 50 or so as people come and go, and they've almost all been online. So you just remove the friction from the process and it kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, it sounds like you've built quite the playbook for acquiring and then updating these self-storage facilities. Is this something you're going to try to do continuously on the side with the grocery store business? Or do you think you'd switch to one or the other over time? In the past two weeks, I've put in two more offers on other self-storage facilities. And we'll see. I'm expecting to hear back on one of them tomorrow. And the other one, I know the owner's not really in a rush. That one's off market. And I think he was kind of just testing the water. So we'll see. But yeah, I'm going to try to do both. I'm still handling a lot of the admin stuff myself. A lot of the detailed billing questions I handle. And once I get another facility, I'm going to hire someone and just put that totally on their plate, which will allow me to scale it up without really my time being impacted. So I can still do both the grocery business and the storage business. That's fantastic. That's such a cool side project to have. (laughs) I'm having a lot of fun with it. I love the yin and yang, you know, comparing the grocery industry to the self-storage industry because grocery is just endlessly complex. You could work 24-7 and never be caught up and never do a good enough job communicating with your customers. Whereas self-storage, it's just so simple in comparison. So it's like a joy to do. It's fun for me. Speaking of fun, on our last conversation, you talked about wanting to know a little bit about what leisure activities other business owners did to kind of balance out their work. 
and we put a Twitter thread together and you, of course, commented and, and talked about CrossFit and jujitsu. I'd love to hear just a little bit about that. Yeah. So you're asking, like, how do you as a business owner disconnect from work and take care of your physical life? And I think I went to my first CrossFit class probably in 2010. I did that for a few months while I was living in New Haven. And then I moved back home, got out of a long-term relationship at that point and was looking for something new, a new group of people. And so I found another CrossFit gym that I knew some people at and really just lifted weights there for a while and eventually got into doing CrossFit again. This was probably like 2012 to 2018. I was doing CrossFit pretty consistently. And it's so much fun just because the learning is endless from gymnastics to bodyweight stuff to Olympic lifting to powerlifting to running, sprinting, jumping. Um, all, all of these movement patterns you get to learn and you get pretty proficient at. And it's just so much fun because it doesn't end. Like you can always add a little more weight. You can always go a little faster. So it's this constant leveling up of yourself and acquiring a new skill set, you know, to go from doing pull-ups on a, on a fixed bar to ring muscle-ups. Like it's just, there's always the next level, the next progression. And I love the structure of CrossFit, the scalability and the thing that took me out of it was I started doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and that's even more addicting. I feel it's like jumping from one cult to another. And uh, the thing is with jiu-jitsu, it's like, it's probably the only martial art that you can go, you can practice full force and not risk getting really hurt because you just tap out. Whereas like if you're doing Muay Thai or some other striking art, you can't really train all out because you're going to get brain damage. You don't care how much headgear you're wearing. If you're taking kicks or punches to the head, it's not going to last long. You're going to do permanent damage. Whereas with jujitsu, it's going for chokes and pressure on joints. And if you are going too far, you know, if someone's doing an armbar on you, they apply a little pressure and you tap the game's over. You clap hands and you're right back at it. And if someone's in a chokehold, they gradually apply pressure and you tap and clap hands and you're back at it again. And it's like this extremely physical game so humbling because you can't fake it in any way and it's so humbling because everyone who walks in there you know exactly where you stand and you know no matter how big and strong you are if you walk in there on day one you could have some little hundred pound girl just tear you apart because you don't have the skills to combat what she's doing and it's just such a beautiful thing and so much fun it's like chess for the human body so i was doing that for about a year and a half and then covid struck and obviously the world shut down and my wife got pregnant and out of an abundance of caution, I haven't gone back yet. We just had our first child in December. So I'm probably due for the COVID vaccine soon being a frontline worker. So once I get that, I'll be back at jujitsu. Yeah, that'll be exciting to hear about. I'm looking forward to seeing what other kind of moves you can do after a little bit more post-COVID jujitsu. <laughs> and I want you to go take a class too, because I know you're going to love it. Yeah, I should definitely try something like that. I haven't done weightlifting or really strong workouts since football in high school. should probably get into something else now soon. Moving into some closing questions, what's a class you would teach in college if you could teach about anything you wanted? This one, I'm not going to go business related, even though it indirectly is. The class would be about how to choose the right person to marry or life partner. And the reason for that is it's really the foundation for a happy life. If you don't have a positive, fulfilling relationship, your work is going to be impacted. Every single thing you do is going to be impacted. And the goal of work is to eventually not have to work or, or work so much. And 
finding someone who you're going to be happy building a life with is probably one of the most important decisions you'll ever make, even more important than the, the work you do, the business you run. And I think people don't know how to quickly qualify as to if this person is right for me. And really the goal being to find out, all right, if you're dating people and you're trying to find who's a good fit in life, to quickly qualify, are they a good fit? And if not, move on. No harm, no foul. And I think people get involved in relationships that in their gut they know aren't right from the beginning. And then things get too deep and, and you don't know how to get out of it. And people settle. And they may end up being miserable for the rest of their life. And as a part of that, I would also teach people the right way to end a relationship. And this applies to business too. If you go into business with a partner, you want to already have pre-planned if things fall apart, how do we dissolve this or how do we get out? Do we have a buy-sell agreement in place? So you want to bookend it. You want your best possible scenario, which is great. You know, you're always working towards that. You also want to cover the worst case scenario. And if things just fall apart completely, what's the best way to get out of this? In that way, there's no drama. You guys, we're just following our plan. We've agreed to this in advance. And I think in relationships, it comes back to honesty. If you are honest with someone, when things are good, they just get better. And if you're honest with things are bad, you can either fix it or move on. And it just applies everywhere in life. And I don't think it's talked about enough. So that's the class I would teach. It's a great class. It definitely applies to business and, of course, life as well. That'd be a good one to add in. I certainly haven't seen anything like that. So I hope you get to add it somewhere. What's a belief you used to hold strongly that you've changed your mind on? I wanted to talk like nutrition stuff on this. That's like my first gut reaction. It's a very polarizing thing. You know, everyone used to think like, oh, red meat's so bad for you, but... It's not the burger patty killing you. It's the bun. But I was going to bring up, I used to, when I was younger, think it'd be really cool to own a bunch of like two family homes and be this landlord with a bunch of apartments. But the first house I bought was a two family. We lived on the top floor and we rented the bottom one. And I actually just made a tweet about this today because there's this kind of recurring thing going around with this tweet where people say, so you want to be a landlord? And then you give like your situation where you probably would want to think twice about being a landlord and with mine i remember it was like 2 a.m and my tenant calls me she goes my tub's backing up the septic's filling up in the tub and i had to go down there with a shop vac and freaking suck the crap coming up from the septic system out well it turns out the flushable cat litter even though it says flushable on the bag it's not flushable and it had settled in the main drain pipe that exits the house so we had to have rotor come in and rotor this settlement of cat litter out so lesson learned do not flush flushable cat litter it's a lie wow that's terrible that's awful i guess the change belief is no i don't want to be a landlord of a bunch of apartments and and deal with people i'd rather be in self-storage where there's no plumbing it's much more simple yeah that's certainly much more simple absolutely what's the best business you've ever seen this is also one i tweeted about recently one source water was founded by a guy i know aj wasserstein He's now a professor at Yale School of Management, and this is his second big recurring revenue, contractual recurring revenue business that he started. And contractual recurring revenue is the gold standard of all revenue types. You know, there's there's varying degrees of revenue quality and contractual recurring revenue being the best one. You often hear people talk about recurring revenue, which you think of like as a storage business or even like a SaaS software company. But contractual recurring revenue is the step above that where you have a contract in place, which locks someone in for an extended period of time, and it has auto-renew clauses, so you don't have to go chase someone down when the contract is ending to get them to resign it. 
And so you can start each year and know for the most part, even if I don't go and acquire one more customer, that my book of business will be there. So as an operator, you can be very long-term focused and just keep going after these big strategic moves to grow your business. And so AJ started One Source Water. I'm sure you've seen at companies, they've got a little water cooler in this in the corner and there's a, a water line going to it and a filter and it keeps the water cold and people can go and, and fill their water bottles up. And he would deploy these into companies and give them a great deal on leasing the water cooler thing. And then there was a service agreement where every month someone would come, make sure the unit was cleaned and, you know, there's no mold or anything on it. And they would change the filter and say it was like $30 a month per water cooler. Well, they had 48,000 of these around the U.S. before he ended up selling it to a private equity company. I don't remember the math off the top of my head. If you check out my Twitter, you'll see it. And these were all contractual recurring revenue agreements. So he he would say like, I want to be in a business that the line item is so small that it would never even cross the CEO's desk to even have them say, oh, we should get rid of this. This is unnecessary. That money's guaranteed. It's going to be paid no matter what because they have these you know, three-year time commitments. And if you don't say anything, it automatically renews to another three-year term. And he grew through acquisition, acquiring all these similar companies throughout the U.S. And one thing I thought was interesting is he didn't care about the real estate at all. He strictly wanted the business assets and, and the, the recurring contracts. So he'd often tell the owners, like, like, listen, I'll just buy the business. You keep the real estate, we'll rent from you. So we have our, our warehouse or whatever we need. So he was just able to grow this thing like crazy and he cashed out big. So I just think it's a such a beautiful business model. Yeah, certainly. And mentioning that he didn't buy the real estate, it's kind of the opposite track that you've taken. Is there a few lessons from his experience that you tried to apply in your own businesses? Well, in that business the real estate isn't critical to the operation, whereas in self-storage, it absolutely is. With the water company, if the landlord started jacking up the rent, he could just go find another place to rent and move his equipment over there. Whereas with self-storage, if you're going to pay to build storage units inside of a building, you need that long-term security because once your lease ends, the landlord could say, wait, he's not going to come and deconstruct all of these units in my building. I'm just going to jack up the rent so he leaves and I'll take over this business. So people do lease buildings for self-storage, but it's it's not advisable. And they also become pretty tough to value because they don't have the real estate component. Yeah, certainly. This has been awesome. Thanks, Rob, for sharing your time with us. It's been really fun to hear about all your businesses through your adolescence and high school, college, and then now the things you're working on now. It's has been a lot of fun and a lot of new ground for the podcast too with self-storage and grocery businesses. So thanks for sharing on those things. Thanks, Alex. This was great. I look forward to reading your new publication when it comes out. Yeah, thank you. I'll be sure to send you a copy. Awesome. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Oh.